The following presentation was recorded at the Center for Christian Study in Charlottesville, Virginia. All audio rights are reserved and protected by international copyright. No part of this presentation may be reproduced in any form without the written permission by University Christian Ministries, Incorporated. The lecturer holds publication rights to all material. For more information, contact the Center for Christian Study at 434-817-1050. Well, good evening, everyone. Glad that you're here for the second night. This may be my favorite lecture of the series. I've been looking forward to this for months and months now because I get to explain covenant theology on the one hand then Tom Wright on the other hand and do a little comparison and contrast. So, uh, fasten your safety belts. Got a lot to cover. And you, either one of those would be an hour and a half presentation in and of itself. So, we've got a lot to cover. Please, let me ask you a favor. Um, Try to, to restrict your questions to quick clarifying questions and that kind of thing and uh, save the extended critiques and commentaries till later. Otherwise, we will never, ever get through. So, um, so let's start. Um, let's do a, just a little bit of review of where we're going. We won't talk too much about last week. Last week, you remember, we did the, um, the narrative substructure of Paul's theology. I love to tell the story, and that's where we did the overview, and we talked about monotheism and election and eschatology and the way all those things are redefined in light of the Christ event and Paul's theology according to N.T. Wright. Tonight, we will talk about Adam, Israel, servant Christ. Does covenant theology get it right? And, of course, it's, it's um, necessary whenever you're talking about N.T. Wright to have a few cheesy puns on his name, and so I've included that there. For that reason, um, we thought that's what we said a few minutes ago. It'll be covenant theology and then, and then Tom Wright's take on that. Next week, we'll talk about the imputed or actually the disputed righteousness of God and uh, Tom Wright's understanding of that vis-a-vis the, the uh, Reformed tradition. And then lastly, we'll talk about righteousness, justification, and faith and works. Having laid the foundation for three weeks, we'll finally get to the most specifically what this uh, lecture is all about. This is, the, this is the chart from last time. Remember, monotheism, election, and eschatology really sum up what, for Tom Wright, is a story that can be expressed in a sentence. The Creator God chose Israel to be a blessing to the world, and then in light of the crucifixion and the resurrection of Christ, and specifically Paul's encounter with the risen Christ on the road to Damascus, each one of those elements was redefined. Monotheism, Jesus himself is the embodiment of God, election, now redefined around Jesus, he becomes the new Israel around which the people of God are now defined. And then eschatology as well, happening now in the middle of time instead of the end of time. Eschatology is already impinged in the world in light of the restoration, resurrection um, of the Lord Jesus Christ. What I'd like to highlight at this point is the centrality of Israel, even in this chart from last week. The Creator God chose Israel to be a blessing to the world. And I want to highlight that. Shows Israel right at the center of the sentence and right at the center of Tom Wright's theology is Israel. So that raises a very important question for us. Where does Israel fit in in traditional Reformed formulations of theology, and especially Paul's theology? How does Israel fit in vis-a-vis Adam and Eve? And how does Israel fit in vis-a-vis the church? And how does Tom Wright's take on that differ from the traditional reform perspective? So this is what I'm going to do. Having highlighted Israel here, I'm going to put this aside for a little bit 
and give us a, be, a brief primer on traditional Reformed theology along the lines of the uh, Westminster Confession and the homilies on salvation from the Book of Homilies and the Anglican Church. Give us a brief primer on what, how Reformed theology understands Adam and Israel. And then with that in mind, we'll talk about um, right, and hopefully the contrast will help us to understand both a bit better. Does that make sense? So that's where we're heading. The centrality of Israel and Tom Wright's thought and how that squares up against uh, Reformed theology. So the title of the talk is Adam, Israel, Servant, Christ, Does Covenant Theology Get It Right? The Structure of Covenant Theology. Structure of Covenant Theology has everything to do with the contrast between Adam and Christ. And for those of you who um, know Paul on this, you'll know that that sort of contrast comes out regularly in Romans 5, 1 Corinthians 15. That's where it's mentioned explicitly, this contrast between Adam and Christ. But it's implicit all over the place. In Philippians 2, in that famous hymn in Philippians, the description of Christ who um, took on the nature of a servant, being in the very form of God, probably alluding to Adam there. That being in the very form of God should probably be very, being in the very image of God. So there's probably an allusion to, to uh, Adam in Philippians 2 and numerous other places, especially as mediated by Psalm 8. If you read Psalm 8, Psalm 8's a beautiful sort of summary of Adam theology. And Paul regularly refers to Psalm 8, this whole idea of everything putting, being put in subjection under Adam's feet, under, uh, under mankind's feet. That whole notion is regularly applied to Christ. He takes on Adam's role as the vice regent over the world. So it's probably fair to say that one of the main underlying structures for Pauline theology is this contrast between Adam and Christ. The question is how you understand that contrast between Adam and Christ. And covenant theology does it in this way. You have with Adam and Eve in the garden, but, but is represented by Adam. Um, Adam disobeys because of his disobedience, the breach of God's law in the garden. A curse comes not only upon him, but upon all of humanity. So you have here, fancy word here, imputation of Adam's sin to mankind. This is traditionally what's called a covenant of works. I'll say more about that in a minute. But the whole idea is, in a covenant of works, and frankly, in, in a covenant, generally speaking, in the ancient world, if you obey, you get a blessing. And if you, get, if you disobey, you get a curse. It just simply means, a covenant of works, and frankly, a covenant generally in the ancient world, simply means it's dependent on what you do or on what you don't do. So sometimes we use this language, covenant of works, and it seems a bit off-putting. But all we're talking about is you get something good if you obey and you get something bad if you disobey. And the covenantal language for that would be a blessing for obedience and a curse for disobedience. The difference between Adam and the rest of people in the ancient world is that he actually represented all of humankind so that his disobedience then has implications for everybody else. So his sin then becomes the reason for a curse upon the entire world and upon humanity. And Romans 5 would be one of the main places we would find that. In fact, the main place. In contrast to that, we have Christ, who by way of his obedience brings a blessing to the new humanity, to the people of God. This too understood very much within a covenant of works uh, framework. 
That is, because of his obedience, he brings a blessing to everyone else. And um, again, Romans 5 is, is, is crucial here. We don't have time to go to that text, but it's that whole contrast between the disobedience of Adam and the obedience of Christ, um, each one of them representing those who belong to them. Adam representing all of humankind and Christ representing um, the people of God formed around him. With, with Christ and his, um, his obedience, there are two more imputations. Watch this. Because Christ died on the cross... The sin which was ours because of Adam is now imputed to Christ. So if it seems a little bit unfair that we should get Adam's sin because of what he did, well then, here's the, other, here's the flip side of the coin. Okay, if it seems unfair that we should get Adam's sin because he corporately represents us, well then, in salvation, Christ takes that very sin upon himself, corporately representing us. And so if there's an imputation of Adam's sin to mankind... There is also an imputation of the church's sin to Christ. And so by his death on the cross, he takes the sin and takes care of the sin problem. Um, there's sort of an accounting metaphor here. You're in debt. You owe money that you can't pay. You owe, there's a penalty. You can't pay it. You're way over your head. You're in the red. So Christ essentially pays your debt for you. That's the idea. And the, and, and the fancy reform language for that is passive obedience. There's really nothing passive about it, but that's what it's called. It's the passive obedience of Christ, that by his death on the cross, he pays the penalty for our sin, and as it were, brings us up to, the, um, brings us up to, to zero. There's no debt against us, but we, likewise, we have no inheritance at that point. And then here's the third and the final imputation. Not only, and this is important to get, Not only in this model or this framework were we saved by the death of Jesus on the cross. Part of our redemption is his obedient life. So that because he lived a perfect and sinless life, he he brought for us the inheritance that Adam failed to bring. In other words, there was, in this understanding, there's an inheritance that Adam was supposed to bring for us. He failed to bring us, failed to win that inheritance by his obedience. And so Christ, by his perfect, sinless um, life, brings the Adam inheritance that Adam didn't bring. So notice that we have three imputations. And in fact, someone like Warfield, Benjamin Warfield, will write an essay where he talks about the three imputations, which are the basis of, of the Reformed understanding and the basis of the gospel. The imputation of Adam's sin to us, the imputation of our sin to Christ by way of the passive obedience of Christ on the cross, and the imputation of his obedience or righteousness to us so that we win the inheritance. And notice that our redemption is incomplete if you simply leave it at the cross. Crucial in this understanding is also the active obedience of Christ, that is, his sinless life his righteousness, his obedience, which he won, and then transfers to us. Does that make sense? So, the three, the three doctrines that would correlate to each one of these is original sin, that would be the imputation of Adam's sin to mankind, that correlates to the first imputation. And then Christ taking our sin upon himself on the cross, that's what we call substitutionary atonement, and justification by faith, actually, strictly speaking, has to do with both 
the imputation of our sin to Christ and the imputation of his righteousness to us. You can't really just correlate it to, to the, his righteousness imputed to us. It actually includes both. We're talking about justification by faith, and it's very important to understand that this is the Reformed perspective on what justification includes. It includes both his obedience to the law and his death for our sins. And let me, let me just show that to you in a few, uh, few passages that some of us may be familiar with. This is from uh, the book of homilies, the homily on the salvation of mankind, which is in the Anglican tradition. Let me read this for you. Now, now listen to this with an ear for those two aspects. Obedience to the law and Christ dying on the cross for our sins. Both of those aspects will be here. For the, and this, this homily on the salvation of mankind is the homily on justification. For the more full understanding hereof, that is of our perfect and full justification, it is our parts and duty ever to remember the great mercy of God, how that, all the world being wrapped in sin by breaking of the law. Notice, notice the problem. The problem is breaking of the law. God sent His only Son, our Savior Christ, into this world to fulfill the law for us. There it is. And by shedding of His most precious blood to make a sacrifice and satisfaction, or as it may be called, amends to His Father for our sins, to assuage His wrath and indignation conceived against us for the same. Notice those two elements. He fulfills the law for us, and He has the, most shedding, he has the shedding of His most precious blood to avert the wrath of the Father. Again, here's, the, here's um, the, same, the same homily on the salvation of mankind. And notice this is talking about justification. So we're, what we're dealing with now is the traditional reformed understanding of justification in both the Anglican and the Presbyterian traditions. Those are the two I'm focusing on um, in view of our audience here. Our justification doth come freely by the mere mercy of God, that whereas all the world was not able to pay any part towards their ransom, it pleased our Heavenly Father to prepare for us the most precious jewels of Christ's body and blood, whereby our ransom might be fully paid, the law fulfilled, and His justice fully satisfied, so that Christ is now the righteousness of all that do truly believe in Him. He for them paid the ransom by His death. He for them fulfilled the law in His life. There it is, very explicitly. So that now in him and by him every true Christian man may be called a fulfiller of the law. Forasmuch as that which their infirmity lacked, Christ's justice hath supplied. So our salvation and more particularly our justification is not just about Christ dying on the cross for us and wiping away the debt that we owe. It's also about Christ fulfilling the law for us. That then becomes the basis of our imputed righteousness, our alien righteousness, his obedience his righteousness then becomes our own. Okay? So it's the passive and the active obedience of Christ on the one hand taking care of the sin problem, on the other hand bringing, the, bringing in the blessing, bringing in the inheritance by His obedience which the first Adam had failed to bring. Okay, now I've got the Westminster Confession. Same sort of notion. The Lord Jesus, by His perfect obedience and sacrifice of Himself. Alright, there it is again. There's the perfect obedience and the sacrifice. They're very consistent. 
which he through the eternal spirit once offered up to God hath fully satisfied the justice of his father and purchased not only reconciliation, presumably coming through the death on the cross, but also an everlasting inheritance in the kingdom of heaven, achieved presumably by his obedience to the law, for all those whom the Father hath given unto him. See those two elements coming out very strongly again and again? Okay, that leads us then, once you understand this whole notion of the the three imputations, and specifically the two with Christ, the imputation of our sin to him and the imputation of his righteousness to us, this leads us to an understanding of why covenant theology is called covenant theology. And it is because you have a covenant of works and a covenant of grace. Hence, covenant theology. And, And actually, this is called... Well, I'll show you in a minute. It's called bicovenantalism um, because of that, because you have two covenants. Up at the top of the screen, you'll notice what I have here is an indication that as Reformed theology sort of developed over the years, um, it was systematized somewhat more, and it was made more explicit that Adam was in a covenant of works, and his disobedience leads to a curse for all of humanity, and that Christ also was in a covenant of works, his obedience leading to a blessing for all of humanity. And sometimes that covenant of works for Adam is called the covenant of creation. And sometimes the covenant of works for Christ is called the covenant of redemption. It doesn't really matter what you call it. People have called it lots of different things over the years. The important thing is to remember this. In traditional Reformed theology, Adam was under a covenant of works and Christ was under a covenant of works. And because Christ was under a covenant of works we have the possibility of a covenant of grace. To put it simply, uh, because, because Christ did it, we don't have to. Because Christ won the inheritance for us, we don't have to win the inheritance. Because Christ fully obeyed, we don't have to obey in a way that brings the inheritance. Now, the obedience flows out of the, flows out of the blessing. So, He wins the blessing for us, and that very blessing, including the Holy Spirit helps us then to obey. But our obedience is not the root of the blessing. It's not the root of the inheritance. It's the fruit of the inheritance. So, obedience is necessary in the Christian life. It's it's, it's necessary in a covenant of grace, but it flows out of the grace that God has given you. That's the difference between a covenant of works and a covenant of grace. And the important thing to note is this. In the traditional Reformed understanding, you can't have a covenant of grace if there is no preceding covenant of works. Does that make sense? Because the fact that we don't have to earn our salvation, the fact that we don't have to be legalist, is founded upon the fact that Christ Himself has done it for us. That He earned the salvation for us. Um, maybe I should be careful with that word earned. Let me, let me just say by way of a real brief um, excursus here. Typically speaking, the word earned and merit, the words earned and merit are avoided. And the reason they're avoided is this, that that in the garden, when Adam was under this this covenant of works, if you use the word earn, it suggests that what you did is proportional to what you got. I mean, in the business world, if you, if you negotiate a particular salary, there's an assumption, although it may not be completely true, there's an assumption that 
what you do is proportional to what you get, and what you what you, what your salary is is proportional to the worth of what you actually do. And so, in order to avoid that notion in the garden, we avoid the word earn, because after all, I mean, God didn't have to promise Adam anything. He was his creator. He could simply have said, "I'm your creator." You do what I want forever and ever, and I'm not going to give you anything. And he would have been perfectly just to have done so. He owed humankind nothing, zero, zilch, because he had made them. And yet, in his great condescension, in his great mercy, in his great love, despite the fact that humans owed him everything and he owed them nothing, he said, okay, if you will simply remain obedient, I will bless you. And in the Reformed understanding, if you will remain obedient for a certain period of time, I will give you unbelievable blessings. Glorified existence, new heavens and new earth, and so forth. It would be like if I told my son, Tom, Tom, look, if you'll take out the trash, I'll give you a million bucks. I mean, could you really say he had earned a million bucks? Or that he had merited a million bucks? No, not really. But you would say that that blessing, that gift, that inheritance of a million bucks was contingent upon his obedience. That his obedience was the instrument of his coming inheritance. Even though they're completely disproportional and it's almost ridiculous. The same sort of thing is true in the garden. Adam and Eve weren't going to earn anything. They weren't going to merit anything if you think of earning and merit in that way. You don't have to. But if you think of it in that way, then they weren't earning or meriting anything. But the blessing was contingent upon their obedience. That's the idea. Does that make sense? Okay. And what you have then is Adam having the reward be contingent upon his obedience or the curse be contingent upon his disobedience and the same thing holding true for Christ. Both of them in a covenant of works. Adam messes up, brings the curse. Christ fully obeys, brings the blessing for all those who belong to him. Hence, we have a covenant of works right up until the moment of the fall. And then from that moment on in Reformed theology, you've got a covenant of grace. It's all grace because of what Christ has done for us in his own covenant of works. It's all grace. Um, there's common grace. The sun shines. The rain comes down. We have moments of health and happiness, whether we're pagans or whether we're Christians. And then there's special grace for the people of God and the promise of eternal life. So... Um, there's all kinds of grace and everything for human beings. On the human side of things, everything for human beings from the moment of the fall on is all grace. And so, that's important to remember. Okay, it's bicovenantalism because you've got the covenant of works and the covenant of grace. And that, remember that term. That's going to be important later on. Um, oh, here's the, here's, the, uh, here's the proof from the Westminster Confession where this position is actually inscribed. So if you're, in the, if you're a Presbyterian, this is what your tradition has to say about it. The first covenant made with man was a covenant of works, wherein life was promised to Adam and in him to his posterity upon condition of perfect and personal obedience. Again, some people object to the whole notion of covenant of works. Um, let me remind you that the, whole, the reason for a covenant of works is, is not to impugn God, to say that he puts human beings in this really un, um, you know, unrealistic and unfair sort of uh, um, setting. It's not that at all. The reason is not to impugn God, it's to protect God. 
so that when, when Adam and Eve fall, whose fault is it? Well, it's Adam and Eve's fault. It's not a failure of God's grace. It's a failure of their obedience. And so a covenant of works seeks to emphasize, emphasize the fact that it has to do with their failure to obey that led to the curse upon them, not God's failure to bless them. So a covenant of works puts the blame where the blame needs to be. That's the idea. Same thing with Israel. Later on we'll talk about some aspect of a covenant of works with Israel. Why did Israel go into exile? Why did God punish Israel? Was it God's fault? God's failure to be faithful to His promises? Or was it Israel's fault? And the covenant of works attempts to make clear that it was Israel's fault. They failed to obey and the curse comes as a result of their disobedience. So, you need to understand the positive aspect of a covenant of works and what it's attempting to protect. It's attempting to protect the integrity and the righteousness of God. If human beings end up suffering, it's not because of God's failure, it's because of their own failure. That's the idea. And so, we have in Westminster Confession 7.2, this notion of a covenant of works with Adam and Eve. When they fell, it wasn't God's fault, it was their own, they failed to obey. And then in the um, Westminster Confession 7.3, next verse, um, man by his fall, having made himself incapable of life by that covenant, the Lord was pleased to make a second, commonly called the covenant of grace. So here we've got the covenant of works, covenant of grace, whereby he freely offereth unto sinners life and salvation by Jesus Christ, requiring of them faith in him that they may be saved and promising to give unto all those who are ordained unto eternal life His Holy Spirit to make them willing and able to believe. Notice there that the blessing, the Holy Spirit here, the blessing becomes the root of even the ability to believe, not, even, not to mention the, the ability to obey. So, grace is all about God giving you the blessing ahead of time, and then that blessing enabling you to obey instead of the obedience itself being the ground of the blessing. Okay, a covenant of works and a covenant of grace. Here's the larger Westminster um, larger catechism. With whom was the covenant of grace made? The covenant of grace was made with Christ as the second Adam and in him with all the elect as his seed. Um, my chart is actually a little more specific than that because it, it actually differentiates between the covenant of grace for all of God's um, people and the covenant of redemption, which would have been the covenant that God made with Jesus Christ, you know, before all eternity, that he would indeed die for and live for the salvation of the elect. But this was actually, the Westminster Larger Confession is fudging a little bit because this was still in debate at the time as to whether you should distinguish between these two covenants. And so notice that it successfully sidesteps the issue. Once you understand this, You can understand the, the relationship between the Israel and the church in covenant theology. Um, sometimes those of us in the Reformed tradition will compare and contrast dispensationalism with covenant theology. And we'll talk about covenant theology believing that, um, that Israel is fulfilled in the church. That, that, um, that the church really is the new Israel. So that there's continuity between Israel and the church. Dispensationalism, on the other hand, sees the church as a kind of interruption in God's dealings 
with ethnic Israel. So you have ethnic Israel, God deals with them, and then Christ comes and dies, and the church represents a parenthesis, an intercalation in God's dealings with ethnic Israel. It's an interruption, it's discontinuous. And so we sometimes we'll talk about dispensationalism as a discontinuity system because the church is an intrusion in God's dealings with ethnic Israel. Reformed theology has always been a system of continuity. It's always about the continuity between Israel and the church. And on this larger chart, you can see why. Because everything after the fall is the covenant of grace. And so Reformed theology has always been much more impressed with the continuity between Israel and the church. Um, so, you know, you've got Israel, and you've got circumcision in Israel. You have baptism in, in, in the church, which corresponds to that. See, as a Baptist, I would, I would bow out at that particular point. But in the Reformed theology, it sees continuity at any number of different levels. So the church simply becomes the new Israel um, and fulfills the vocation of, of, of old Israel. So it's a continuity system because... Whatever may be true before the fall, after the fall, what's most impressive in Reformed theology is the fact that both Israel and the church are under a covenant of grace. Now, there's kind of an exception to that I'll note in just a minute, but that's, that's, the, main, that's the main thing, the main point that um, you'll find in these confessions and creeds. So the Westminster Confession says, There are not, therefore, two covenants of grace differing in substance, but one and the same under various dispensations. So, there's only one covenant of grace. There's not two, one for Israel and one for, church, one for the church, or maybe one for Abraham, and then Israel doesn't count. It's saying it's all one covenant of grace, and yes, they may be under different modes or dispensations during the period of Israel, the period of the church, but it's all grace. It's all, it's all one covenant of grace according to the Westminster Confession. And this is the minor exception that I was talking about earlier. Notice that I've got this big oval in the position of Israel between Adam and Christ. And this is a quotation from a really good book. If you want to read something on covenant of works, it's by Roland Ward. It is. And it's entitled, Reformed Theology and the Creation Covenant, A Close Examination of the Covenant of Works, More Than You Ever Wanted to Know about the covenant of works, but it probably is a great standard sort of resource. So that's Roland Ward, God and Adam. And he says on, uh, in his book, the Westminster Confession of Faith does not exclude views of the Mosaic Covenant that saw an aspect of the Mosaic Covenant illustrative of the works and inheritance principle in it, sub- subservient to its position as an administration of the covenant of grace. This was quite a common viewpoint. Um, in other words, as long as you affirm that most basically everything after the fall is a covenant of grace, you can admit that at some level there was a covenant of works with Israel. At some level. So, for example, the way my teacher and mentor Meredith Klein did this, um, one of the great reform scholars of the um, 20th century, um, the way he would do it is he would say, look, at an eternal level, the remnant is saved by faith, by grace, in Israel and in the church. So, if you're in heaven, you got there because of faith. And you got there by God's grace. It's all a covenant of grace. Okay, so the basic thing is you've got a covenant of grace, but within that you have a possibility of a covenant of works. So, Meredith Klein was saying that 
at the level of Israel's temporal existence in the land, it was a covenant of works. In other words, as a people, if they obeyed, they got to stay in the land and enjoy the land and get all the blessings of the covenant. And if they disobeyed, exile, here you come. So at the, at the temporal, earthly level, it was a covenant of works. That's one way of doing it in the Reformed tradition. But of course, in matters of eternal salvation and so forth, it's a covenant of grace. So what you're doing is you're sort of dividing, you're sort of dividing Israel up and saying, okay, at one level it's a covenant of grace. At a subservient level, it's a covenant of works. Does that make sense? And that's just trying to do justice to what actually is going on in the Old Testament. And, you know, clearly the, the, um, Israel anticipates the church in all sorts of interesting ways. In positive ways, it anticipates the church. That's all that continuity we were talking about. And you have to do justice to the continuity. On the other hand, Israel clearly went into exile. And um, they went into exile not because of a failure on God's part, but because of a failure on that part. And that looks a lot like what's generally called a covenant of works. Their own disobedience led to their curse. And so, trying to do justice to the historical reality of Israel means... It seems, on the one level, to talk about a covenant of grace, how, the ways in which it anticipates the church, and on another level, to talk about a covenant of works, the ways in which they failed, and frankly, the ways in which they recapitulated the sad story of Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve, in a beautiful land, they disobey, they get kicked out. Israel, in a beautiful land, graciously put there by God, they disobey over hundreds of years, and they get kicked out. So the story of Adam and Eve and the story of Israel is very much parallel. So you're trying to do justice to that as well. Yeah. Yeah. So the, the, any commandment of God implicit in that is that you can obey. So Adam could have obeyed God, and Israel could have obeyed God in the law. Yes. Um, I, I think that not, that question is probably sidestepped. I mean, di- different people will come down on different sides of that uh, in the Reformed tradition. But, but the point is, is that if they did obey it, then they would have gotten the blessing. And if they didn't obey it, and, and there will be reform, some Reformed theologians who will say, well, they really never could have, and the whole point was so that God could demonstrate His mercy and His grace and everything could be dependent upon Him. And others who will insist that actually, at least for Adam and Eve in the, in the time of the fall, before the fall, that is, that they, they, they truly did have a free will at that point. And uh, in fact, that's the position that's just more taken in the Westminster Confession. Okay, at this point, we're going to um, segue over to Tom Wright. Now, this has been a super fast introduction to Reformed theology. But I hope you have the basics. That you have Adam and Christ, three imputations, an imputation of Adam's sin to us, and then on the other side, an imputation of our sin to Christ, and an imputation of his righteousness to us. And that bifurcating Adam and Christ is the covenant of works and the covenant of grace. The covenant of works on one side, that's before the fall, the covenant of grace on the other side. And what makes the covenant of grace possible from a Reformed perspective is the fact that you have a covenant of works with Christ. He did it. He won it so that we don't have to. This, by the way, is why people in the Reformed tradition get very upset when you deny bicovenantalism. This is why they insist on a covenant of works. Because to their understanding, the very, the, very, um, the very nature of grace is dependent upon Christ doing it for us. Christ being under a covenant of works. And so if you say, well, there is no such thing as a, a covenant of works, it's all grace, 
their reply would be, you can't have grace unless Christ has done it for us. And so they would insist on a covenant of works precisely in order to guarantee the possibility of grace. I had a conversation, I was at a conference last week, and I had a conversation with someone who is um, one of the main interpreters of this Meredith Klein, and he was talking about how few people understand bicovenantalism and how important bicovenantalism to our understanding of grace. I hope you understand what he means by that now. Bicovenantalism means that you believe that in addition to a covenant of grace, there is such a thing as a covenant of works. That's the by part. There's two covenants. Covenant of grace and a covenant of works. And if you deny a covenant of works, from that perspective, you deny the very possibility of grace and you undercut grace. You may remember last week, we saw that very stark statement from the Mississippi Valley Presbytery which was um, calling this whole, you know, Tom Wright and the New Perspective and the Auburn Avenue theology, all of those theologies are mono-covenantalist. They don't believe that there was a covenant of works separate from a covenant of grace. And that letter that we, that we saw last week saw that as a real travesty and perversion of grace. And you can see why they would. On this understanding, you can see why they would. You can't have grace without Christ doing it for us. You can't have a covenant of of grace without a prior covenant of works on that understanding. Where a denial of a bicovenantal understanding also call into question the necessity of Christ's death? You said it, it negates the possibility of grace. Does it also raise the question of why substitution is necessary? <laughs> yeah, possibly. Um, yeah, I mean, I would need to think about it. No, no mono-covenantalist will deny, will deny the, um, the need for Christ to die for our sins. They might well, de- they might well deny um, the imputation of Adam's sin to us um, and, and the imputation of his righteousness to us. They may well deny those things. But, but no, no main mono-covenantalist that I'm thinking of from, from Gundry to Wright to Haifman or any of the others ever denies the need for our... Um, our sin to be imputed to Christ. That, that, that imputation, they always admit. Um, I, I, I sometimes do wonder how they would explain this whole perspective of um, Adam's disobedience leading to a curse or Israel's disobedience leading to a curse. How you can explain that without some reference to a covenant of works, which seems to me to be um, simply an elaboration of what, what any ancient Near Eastern covenant would have been. Apart from a royal grant, if you had a suzerain vassal treaty of the ancient Near East, it would have been something that was dependent on what you did or didn't do. And that, that is simply, that's what a covenant of works is all about. I don't, know, I don't know how they explain that. Okay. That is so dark. Wow. All right, here's, here's my segue now into Tom Wright. And notice that I've got this this thing flipping down over here. Now, now vertically, instead of horizontally, we have the covenant of works, and then here's the covenant of grace. And you'll notice I've got this continuity between Israel and the church. The reason I've done this is now I want to line up Tom Wright um, on this chart and show you how he fits in and, and how reformed or non-reformed he may be as, as the case is. So this is my attempt to compare Tom Wright to the reformed tradition. Okay, there's just a chart from last week. Um, in conjunction with this, this whole reformed emphasis on the continuity between Israel and the church. 
And remember from last week we had Tom Wright talking about the understanding uh, in Jewish theology that Paul would have been familiar with is the Creator God choosing Israel to be a blessing to the world. And then as redefined by uh, by, um, by the Christ event, Paul would understand it is basically the Creator God chose Christ and, uh, and, and the church to be a blessing to the world. So that's what you basically have down here. So let me just highlight these two things. One, this is the aspect of Israel, God choosing Israel to be a blessing to the world. And here's the church, where God chooses the church as redefined around Christ to be a blessing to the world. And for Tom Wright, he sees complete continuity here. As suggested from last week, you know, we had all these arrows going down. It's all been redefined because of Christ, because of His death, because of His resurrection. Monotheism is being redefined. Now Christ, God is embodied in Christ. Election has been redefined. Now it's Jews and Gentiles, again, defined around Christ. And eschatology has been um, redefined because it's already begun in the death and resurrection of Christ. But for Tom Wright, there's continuity between these two. At this, at this uh, level... He's, um, he's very reformed because he sees the church really as the new Israel. And, and that pervades his theology. So at that level, Tom Wright is extremely reformed. And, and he actually understands himself to be in the reformed tradition in that sense. That Israel finds its fulfillment in the church through Christ. That's a very reformed way of looking at the relationship between Israel and the church. To understand that, it's helpful to compare and contrast Tom Wright with somebody that he's oftentimes lumped in with, which is E.P. Sanders. Now, you may remember that last time, I uh, I talked a little bit about this book, Paul and Palestinian Judaism by E.P. Sanders. Remember back in the late 70s, 1977, um, this huge revolution was begun in New Testament studies because of this book. And in this book, E.P. Sanders argues that Judaism was not legalistic. That that was a complete misunderstanding of Judaism. And he actually defines the pattern of religion for Judaism as being something called covenantal gnomism. In other words, they were in the covenant by God's grace and they had to obey the law, yes, but but that was just the condition of their staying in. It wasn't the condition of their getting in. And, and, and any notion of earning or meriting God's grace is completely out of place in Judaism. So that was, that was his thesis, which many, many people accepted, including Tom Wright, that Judaism of the first century was not a legalistic religion. Now, E.P. Sanders went on to contrast what most Jews believed with what Paul came to believe. So that if you read this book, by the end of the book, you've got this huge contrast between Palestinian Judaism, all these Jews who are not legalistic, and Paul over here, who also isn't legalistic. But E.P. Sanders just doesn't know what to do with Paul. He's like, okay, there's just no parallel to this notion of being in Christ. Where do you get that from? This notion of somehow being mystically bound up with Christ, participating in Him... How do you explain that on the basis of anything in Palestinian Judaism? And if you've read a lot of Paul, you'll know that he's constantly talking about being in Christ and having died with him and having been resurrected with him. And, uh, you know, people for a long time have trying to figure out where that came from. 
You know, did it come from Hellenism on the one hand, some sort of mystery religion participation or something of that notion? Or, or what? What's going on? And so E.P. Sanders says, okay, here's Palestinian Judaism. That's one thing. And, and that, that's what PJ is there. PJ, Palestinian Judaism's covenantal nomism. Okay, that's one pattern of religion. But then Paul has this other pattern of religion that's just completely different, completely bizarre. Participationist eschatology. Okay, in fairness, he doesn't call it bizarre. But it is very different. And he calls it participationist eschatology. That Paul believed that the, um, the New Age had broken in in Christ. That's the eschatology. And that somehow we participate in him. This mystical participation in the New Age. And he said, there's just nothing of that in Judaism of the first century. So, consequently, he has Paul actually being in opposition to what Israel had always believed and basically coming up with an entirely new pattern of religion. It's just, it's new. It's novel. It was Paul. And even the Christian church didn't understand Paul. So they just, you know, basically the Christian church went back to being a sort of Jewish-like religion. You know, covenantal nomism. Um, Wright takes strong exception to this viewpoint. That's why we must be careful not just to lump him in with a new perspective. Because he actually disagrees very strongly with this notion that there's this utter discontinuity between what all the Jews believed and what Paul believed. This is how, this is how Tom Wright lines it up. And this is, this is in some connection with what we did last week. Oh, I guess I should mention, um, E.P. Sanders does note that there's what he calls a juridical element. That would be all the law court stuff, justification, um, any, any, the metaphors of Paul that talk about being justified before a judge. But he says that's not really important. That's not the main thing for Paul. Justification is a sideline for him. Albert Schweitzer, that famous missionary to Africa, said the same sort of thing. I mean, what Paul's really about is a mystical participation in Christ. Justification language he just uses from time to time to advance a particular argument in a particular context. But it's not really all that important to him. Tom Wright says, this aspect of, of E.P. Sanders' thought is nonsense. And this is what he does with it. And this, this is, uh, hopefully this will give us some insight into how Tom Wright constructs things and, and insight into the, the fabric of his thought. Wright sees continuity in line with the Reformed tradition, I might add. Okay? So there's election. I, I just put election here where we had it before just so you can see it. Creator God chooses Israel. There's election. And election redefined in light of the Christ event. And, um, and you'll notice that this arrow that I've drawn here goes right through participationism. Wright says, look, there's no need to say that participationism, this notion of being in Christ, that that's something strange, that maybe you maybe borrowed it from the Greeks or who knows where it came from. He says, there's nothing strange about that at all. It's simply the notion of a people being defined by its king. It's covenant sort of language. Just as in the Old Testament, the people could talk about themselves having a share in David. Ten tribes have ten shares in David. Judah has one share in David. It's just talking about now you're being redefined around Jesus. He's the one in whom you are redefined. He's the Messiah, and so as the Messiah, he sums up all of his people. And so he said, this is in complete continuity with the Old Testament. You shouldn't go saying that this is something that's 
completely contrastive. So uh, here's, here's a choice quote from Tom Wright on this. Now, this is Tom Wright opposing E.P. Sanders and this whole new perspective, in this, in, this, uh, in this case at least. For Paul, being in Christ, the fundamental participationist idea, and there he's quoting Sanders, means belonging to the people of God as redefined around the Messiah. It is, in other words, a specifically covenantal way of speaking. So he's saying, look, yeah, we've got participationism, but that simply means they're participating in Christ because he's the Messiah. And God is redefining covenant and election around Christ now. So instead of playing that off against Judaism, we should simply see it as a fulfillment of what Judaism um, believed and hoped for. Likewise, and if you have questions on this, please ask me. Likewise, for eschatology, he says, look, you know, there is eschatology, but eschatology in this case is redefined around Jesus. And um, as we said last time, that which was expected to come at the end of time has come in the middle of time. The resurrection has come, and because the resurrection has come, the restoration has begun in Christ. So in one sense, the end of the ages has already come, and we're already in the new age. In a very strong sense, we're already in the new age. So, he says uh, there's, no, there's no need to play that off against Jewish hope. The Jewish hope for that to happen at the end of time. Well, the resurrection has come, so obviously we have to rethink that. It's, so, that means that, that eschatology has already arrived, at least for Jesus and for those who are connected to him. And then lastly, Wright refuses to take the notion of justification the whole juridical element, the whole law court metaphor. Whenever Paul talks about justification, Wright refuses to take that and marginalize it. He's speaking against a long tradition of doing that in New Testament studies. Albert Schweitzer did it. E.P. Sanders did it. Um, admittedly, a lot of Lutheran scholars didn't do it, but those two guys did it very strongly. And, and Wright says, no, that's, that's absolutely not. It belongs here with the other two. And this is what he does. He says it's the law court metaphor. So for, for Wright, he'll come up with three, three metaphors, three things that are very important in light of which we have to understand justification. Covenant membership, the, the redefined people of God, waiting for God to vindicate them one day, even as he's already vindicated Jesus Christ. What he's already done for Jesus, one day he'll do for us. He'll remake us and give us a place in the new world, the new heavens and the new earth. And the law court is a good way of understanding that. The judge of all the universe will vindicate his people. The judge of all the universe will one day vindicate, there's eschatology, his people. That's covenant membership. And notice that this, all of this, this whole notion of God one day vindicating his people is understood in complete continuity with what Israel had hoped and expected before. It's just been redefined in Jesus. So, so um, even though sometimes he's lumped in with the new, with, uh, with the new perspective, with E.P. Sanders, it's important to remember, E.P. Sanders sees huge contrast between Paul and his Jewish setting. And Tom Wright sees huge continuity. And in that sense, he truly is a Reformed theologian. He's in complete line um, with the Reformed tradition on emphasizing continuity between Israel and the church as redefined through Jesus. Okay. Any questions about this chart, which... Um, 
ends up having a lot of information on it. But I'm trying, I'm trying, to, I'm trying to do two things at once here. I'm trying to show you how, how Tom Wright lines up with the, the continuity emphasis in Reformed tradition on the one side and trying to show you how he departs from the new perspective, at least as, as defined by E.P. Sanders, on the other side. Yeah, Lois? In terms of the law court, on what basis will he vindicate, use the phrase vindicate his people? On what basis? Well, um, <laughs> that's where we get into justification. As we'll see um, in, in the succeeding weeks, Tom Wright talks about a justification of faith now and a justification by works later on but, um, at the final judgment. But before our hackles get up too much on that, we have to understand that he completely redefines what justification means. Um, justification is not what we generally understand justification to, to be. So um, it would only be fair to judge him in light of his redefinition. He, so I guess what I'm saying is you're going to have to come for the next two weeks <laughs> to get the full story on that and to get the full answer to that question. But, let, let, but I'll, I'll continue to lay the, uh, the groundwork at this point. So far, this might just be a further elaboration of the traditional Reformed emphasis on the continuity between Israel and the church. Continuity between Israel and the church. Uh, Tom Wright is very much in, in, that, um, in that tradition. But what about Adam and the covenant of works? I, I, as, you, as you see by the chart, I've bracketed that, that whole discussion for the moment. And this is where we get to the big difference between Tom Wright and traditional Reformed theology. Here's the key. For NTW, Tom Wright, Christ's role as the last Adam is understood in light of his fulfillment of Israel's vocation. Instead of understanding Israel in light of Adam, you've got a covenant of works with Adam, and now we're going to understand Israel as sort of a subsidiary version of that. You have to look at Israel first. This goes back to what I said at the very beginning. Israel is central in Tom Wright's thought. Everything is evaluated through Israel's vocation, especially in a place like Isaiah 53. Now, let me explain what I mean by that, because this is the big difference that Wright has with traditional Reformed theology. Israel itself is the second Adam intended to redeem the world. Jesus takes on the Adamic role, the role of Adam, as it has been redefined in Israel. Now, you just have to be patient here and let me explain this a little bit because it will result in something quite different from Reformed theology as we've outlined it, even though he does believe in a lot of continuity between Israel and the church. So what does this mean for Christ's obedience? And I think this is the key question to ask. For Reformed theology, Christ is obedient to the law. Um, the law is summed up for Adam and Eve, or the law is summed up for Israel and the Ten Commandments or something of that nature. But, um, but Christ is obedient to the law and fulfills the law and as a result brings in the promised inheritance, brings in the blessing. For Tom Wright, in his interpretation of Paul, it is very different. And let's look at that. And this is a quote from the Auburn Conference, paraphrased by a guy named Tim Gallant, um, who has a, a website, uh, rabbisaul.com. And uh, he helpfully took notes on this conference, which was right at the beginning of this year. And, and uh, Ben Lagell was actually at that conference, right, Ben? So, 
What is the main point about the Messiah's faithfulness or obedience? Now, this is Tom Wright speaking at this conference. Both Philippians 2 and Romans 1 through 8 give the answer. The Messiah's sacrificial death. The Messiah has done through his death what Israel was called to do in the first place. His death has made the atonement through which the nations are redeemed. He has acted on behalf of Israel for the whole world. The cross of the Messiah lies at the heart of election. So what was he obedient to? He wasn't obedient to the law. He was obedient to Israel's vocation. Remember that sentence that we dealt with last week? The Creator God chose Israel to be a blessing to the world. And in the hidden and the mysterious purposes of God, the way in which that would happen is through the death on the cross. But he wasn't obedient to the law. The law says nothing about that per se, about being a blessing to the world. The law certainly says nothing about dying on the cross. He's obedient to that particular vocation. That's, that's different. Yeah. Great question. The question is, is, is there any way to merge the two? Um, well, yeah, I think so. Um, let me suggest something on that on the, at the end. Because I, I, think, I think you're onto something here. I don't think that Tom Wright's insights are mutually exclusive. And, and just by way of anticipation, I, I will argue a little, at, at some point, I will argue that I think we can accept most of Tom Wright's insights without denying, or without failing to have a place for a covenant of works. And in fact, that's what I do in my own theology. But let's, let's uh, yeah, that's a great, great point. Uh, I, think the, I think we can take the strengths of both of them. But for the moment, notice his emphasis. From his perspective, it's mutually exclusive. He's not being obedient to the law. He's being obedient to Israel's vocation. So a covenant of works really doesn't enter into it. That's not the point. I'll have another chart in a minute that will show more about that. Let's read a little bit more of Tom Wright to get the idea. This is from his commentary on Romans. And this is, there here he directly addresses the Reformed tradition. What does Paul suppose the Messiah was obedient to? A long tradition within one strand of the Reformation, of Reformation thought has supposed that Paul was here referring to Jesus' perfect obedience to the law. And he's here commenting on Romans 5. In this view, Christ's active obedience and his passive obedience work together. His active obedience acquires righteousness, which is then reckoned to those in Christ. His passive obedience, culminating in the cross, deals with his people's sins. Powerful though this thought is, and influential though it has been, even in the liturgy where the merits and death of Christ are sometimes mentioned in this double sense, it is almost certainly not what Paul has in mind here. So here he attacks the issue head on. And here's his own perspective. The Isianic servant to whom reference is being made was obedient to the saving purpose of Yahweh. Now he's referring to Isaiah 53 here. The plan marked out for Israel from the beginning, but that through Israel's disobedience only the servant as an individual can now accomplish. So Israel was always intended to be the means of the world's redemption, as seen in a place like Isaiah 53. But what Israel failed to do because of its own perpetual disobedience now falls to its Messiah. 
The obedience of the Messiah in Romans 5.19 therefore corresponds closely to the faithfulness of the Messiah in Romans 3.22. It refers to his obedience to God's commission, as in Romans 3.2, to the plan to bring salvation to the world. Does that sound familiar? He's very consistent. The Creator God chose Israel to be a blessing to the world. The plan to bring salvation to the world rather than amassing a treasury of merit through Torah obedience. So what is Christ being obedient to? Not to the law, but to the specific vocation of Israel that's much bigger than the law. Let me see if I can explain that a little more. Final quote, though. Obedience to the law would be beside the point. The law has a different and much darker function in the argument than is often supposed. That is indeed the subject of the next verse. And the next verse he goes on to is, is where the, um, the law increases the trespass in Romans 5. This is all Tom Wright and is from his commentary on the book of Romans. Now let me give you two charts, I think, which will illustrate the difference between these two. If, if you're like me, you're a visual person and, uh, and it helps to see it. Uh, in a chart form, this is my own, these are my own renditions of Reformed theology versus Wright's theology. To what then is Christ obedient? You've got Adam's disobedience, you've got Christ's obedience. To what then is Christ obedient in covenant theology? Here's a visual way of looking at it. Okay, we've already seen that, this bifurcation between the covenant of works right up until the fall and the covenant of grace which marks everything from the fall on. That's bicovenantalism. Okay, and Adam's disobedience and the um, Adamic administration, it was a covenant of works. And everything after the fall was a covenant of grace. That's including the Abrahamic covenant and the Mosaic law. You notice I have that in purple. Okay. Now, um, see that one of my colors isn't showing up at all on this screen. Um, the point here is that Christ's obedience is understood in light of Adam's disobedience. Adam's disobedience is taken to be a covenant of works. Because he disobeyed, he got the penalty. He got the curse. And that is understood very much in light of this works principle in the law that I've already talked about. So in the law, at the earthly temporal level, if, Adam, if, uh, if Israel disobeyed, guess what? They went into an exile. And they earned it. Or they... At least it was as a result of, on the basis of, their disobedience. And so, even though you have a covenant of grace from the period of the fall on, Christ's obedience is very much understood as a covenant of works in conformity with the covenant of works with Adam and that covenant of works with Israel, at least at the earthly level. And so, if my chart were working right on this screen, you would have this, this light green color going here. And so all, Christ's obedience is understood completely in this way. And it, makes, it, it actually makes a lot of sense. Read Romans 5 in light of this particular chart, and it makes some sense. In fact, let's see here. Oh, yeah, okay. I don't know if you can see this white arrow here, but this white arrow shows that his obedience is understood in light of Adam's covenant of works and then this covenant of works at, at the minor level um, in Israel as well. And here's the Westminster Confession again. I want to point something out to you. The first covenant made with man was a covenant of works wherein life was promised to Adam and in him to his posterity upon condition of perfect and personal obedience. 
Notice the scripture verses that are used here in the Westminster Confession. Galatians 3, Romans 5, Galatians 3. The really interesting thing here, from my perspective, Romans 5 is about Adam and Christ. Galatians 3 has nothing about Adam. Galatians 3 is all about Israel. In fact, you know what, I probably... Probably ought, to, probably ought to read that to you in case you're not, in case you're not pulling that up immediately. But um, catch this language in Galatians 3. And, uh, because I want us to take seriously the Reformed tradition. There are lots of really smart people for, who for many years thought about this. So we need to take, take it seriously. Here's, here's Galatians 3.10 through 12. And notice that we've got both 3.10 and through 3.12 cite it here as proof that Adam was in the covenant of works. Okay, this is one of their bases, which is interesting to me. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to do them. Interesting emphasis on doing there. Now it is evident that no man is justified before God by the law, for he who through faith is righteous shall live. But the law does not rest on faith. For he who does them shall live by them. That's Galatians 3.10-12. through 12. And that's, off, that's usually interpreted as a contrast between the doing of the law and the non-doing of simply trusting faith. See? So that this is, this is usually taken as evidence for that aspect of a covenant of works of doing in the law. But the interesting thing here is that they're citing these proof texts for a covenant of works in Israel for a covenant of works with Adam. <laughs> I mean, what they're talking about here in Westminster Confession of Faith is a covenant of works with Adam, the first covenant made. So clearly, they see these texts dealing with Israel in a covenant of works as, as being in some sense a reflection of the covenant of works with Adam. So clearly, even though they don't, say, they don't spell it out in so many words, the Westminster Confession sees a works principle in the Mosaic Law, which is a reflection of the covenant of works with Adam and helps us to understand what Christ was being obedient to. Israel was not obedient to the law. Adam was not obedient to the law. Christ was obedient to the law and thus fulfills the function of Adam and Israel. The proper function, that is, of bringing in the inheritance through obedience. If Israel had been obedient to the law, would it then have fulfilled the vocation among the Gentiles that it was supposed to have? Well, yeah, that, 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 raises, <laughs> that raises the question which, which is almost unanswerable. And, and in fact, it's a great question because, and the question is, if Israel had fulfilled this vocation, would there have been a need for Christ? And this, question, this very question was raised. There's, there's an entire um, listserv, as I've said, d dedicated to discussing Tom Wright and his theology. And that, ex that exact question was raised. And, and uh, I think the conclusion basically was, in, God, God, in God's purposes, he always intended for Christ to do it. So, you know, it's just sort of speculative. It'd be like, well, what if Adam and Eve hadn't fallen? Well, you can speculate on it, but, but in, his, in his larger purposes, Adam and Eve were to fall. So, um, that's, that's covenant theology, Christ being obedient to the law. Now let's see if we can do a little bit of a chart with, uh, with Tom Wright's theology, which what Christ was being obedient to. 
To what then is Christ obedient in NTW theology? Okay, and there's, there's, the, there's the tagline from, from Tom Wright. The Creator God chose Israel to be a blessing to the world. Okay, and this is the key thing. Notice that Christ's obedience here, He's being obedient to the Abrahamic covenant. Because remember, at the very beginning, when, when God, you know, when God uh, called Abraham, He said... Um, I will make you a blessing and all nations will, bless, will, will be blessed by you, right? In fact, Paul quotes that as basically the definition of justification in, Rome, in, in Galatians 3. But from the very beginning, from the, from, from the Abrahamic covenant on, there's this notion that God will bless Abraham and his descendants so that they can be a blessing to the world. And from Tom Wright's perspective, that's what Christ is being obedient to, to the Abrahamic covenant to, quote, God's commission to bring salvation to the world. He's not, being, he's not being obedient to the law. We'll see where the law fits in in just a minute. So, why did God have to have a commission to bring salvation to the world? Well, because um, Adam had already disobeyed and sent in exile from the Garden of Eden, which was itself an anticipation of Israel's later disobedience and exile from the land. So, you have basically... Adam disobeys, things come to, come, come to a focus in, in Adam, and then God sort of begins over again in Abraham, and Abraham and his descendants then represent God's vocation or God's commission to undo what had happened in the first Adam. In that sense, Israel is itself a second Adam. Israel itself has this salvific commission. And so... Israel comes along. Israel is supposed to now undo the sin of the world, but fails miserably. And so, Christ's obedience here is understood not in light of the Mosaic Law. We'll show where that fits in in just a minute. But notice, here's my white arrow again. It's understood in light of the Abrahamic Covenant, the overall vocation of Israel to bring salvation to the world in order to correct the problem of the first Adam. And in that sense... Wright freely admits there's an imbalance. That um, the first Adam never had to correct anything. So, um, so, from the very beginning, Israel as the second Adam is, um, is doing something the first Adam could never have done because it's being done in light of the fall. Here's... Yeah. Could you go, could you go to the... Yeah, whereas, whereas in Reformed theology, there's a real clear balance. Adam didn't obey the law, and um, because of that he was cursed. And Jesus does obey the law, and as a result of that, he's blessed. So, I mean, it's, 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 it's perfectly symmetrical in, in typical Reformed theology. In, in Tom Wright's way of understanding it, it's asymmetrical, because, yes, Adam had to obey to bring in a blessing, but over here, um, Christ, or, or rather I should say, Israel's commission to bring salvation to the world is something that involves from the very beginning having to undo the penalty, having to undo the penalty of sin. And so in that sense, it's asymmetrical. In other words, God, God includes within this covenant an undoing of the penalty of sin that never would have been a part of, of, of Adam's original commission. So, 
This will become more clear when I explain the purpose of law. Explain to, I mean, to be a blessing to the world is the promise to Abraham to get from a blessing to the world to their vocation being to make atonement. Yeah. I guess that is the connection. Yes, and this is where the dark purpose of the law comes in. Notice I've got the dark law there. Okay. This is where Wright sees the law. Instead of Adam being obedient to the law, he sees the law as performing this negative and mysterious and ultimately unresolvable function until Christ comes. It doesn't really make sense. But for, but for Tom Wright, this Mosaic law was there simply as a way of heaping up sin in one place so that the Messiah can deal with it. So the, the law comes in and has this mysterious function of they disobey the law, they get more sin. They disobey the law, they get more sin. And in that sense, they, they represent the rest of the world and, and the rest of the world's perpetual disobedience, but more so. They're the most sinning of nations because they actually have God's standards most clearly revealed to them. So the law comes in to increase the trespass. So it's not that, it's not that Christ is being obedient to the law. The law is there in almost an entirely negative function for Tom Wright. And it's there simply to sort of heap up sin in one place, gathering it in this representative people because Israel itself represents the rest of the world. Heaping up sin on this representative people so that the representative of that people, the Messiah, can have it all heaped up on himself. So it's an extremely different understanding. Really, for Tom Wright, you've got the covenant and then you've got the law. Um, this will correspond to his whole understanding of covenantal gnomism. The covenant's the main thing. Gnomism is sort of the, the badge of, of your covenant membership, shows whether you belong to the covenant or not, but it doesn't really function as a covenant of works. It simply has a function of sort of heaping up sin on the people, um, but what Christ is really being obedient to is the Abrahamic covenant and the overall vocation to bring salvation to the world. A very positive you know, way of looking at things. It's like what? Yeah, yeah, he said that the purpose of the law is like filling up the cup of wrath. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, that'd be a good way of putting it. And so, once, once this law heaps up sin in one place, things come to a focus again. Now, not in Adam, but in Christ, the second Adam, the new Israel who then takes all that heaped up sin, comes under the law, takes up the heaped up sin, and deals with sin by dying on the cross. And um, Tom Wright sees that part of his Adam-like vocation. There, there are some people who say that, you know, Christ was only the, the second Adam in his resurrection from the dead. At his moment of the resurrection from the dead, he became the second Adam. And Tom Wright says, absolutely not. He has to be the second Adam in his crucifixion too, because it was in his crucifixion that he was doing, or I should say undoing, what the first Adam had so horribly gotten wrong. He was undoing the sin of the world. And so he's acting as the second Adam in his crucifixion. And for Tom Wright, and I think this is correct, for Tom Wright, the focus point of Paul's theology is always on the cross. And he acts, and Jesus acts premierly as the second Adam when he's dying on the cross taking the penalty for the sins world and thus showing the mysterious purpose of the law. The law was always there to heap up sins on him and showing what the true vocation of Israel always was, 
which was to deal with um, to deal with the sins of the world by going into exile. And that's what he did in his death. He went into exile. And um, and then in his resurrection, he, he was restored. He, it, that's the restoration. So the story of Israel then is fulfilled in Jesus Christ, who goes into exile. Unfortunately, they were going into exile for their own sins. He goes into exile for the sins of the world and truly fulfills that way the vocation um, of the servant in Isaiah. <clears throat>